the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before Taylor and I get started with our discussion today, consider throwing us a buck a month at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or leave us a review on iTunes. To that note, I wanted to, I had forgotten to shout out the people that had left us the banger episode reviews. So shout out to Xenocided. Arc underscore keeper and no easy answers podcast for the iTunes reviews. Taylor, I'll let you introduce our topic today because I think you have a better overall kind of grasp in terms of why you chose this, the motivation behind that, and kind of like where it fits into, I guess, the context of our work together or discussions together. We are finishing up our anti Oedipus walkthrough chapter by chapter and really subsection by subsection almost you know trying to squeeze that text for for all of its worth and we're sort of coming to the tail end of chapter 3 of anti-oedipus where they are looking at the formations of states based on archaeological ethnological ethnographic evidence and particularly with a kind of novel reading of marx's kind of critical ironic universal history from the light of capitalism so I was thinking that one text that always seems included in every upper undergraduate humanities seminar or, you know, intro to theory seminar in graduate school is Althusser's Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses, which he subtitles Notes Toward an Investigation. And you can find it in uh, his, his volume, Lenin and Philosophy and Other Essays. That volume is a nice little volume to introduce oneself to, to Althusser, but particularly this essay stands out. It's also freely available on Marxist.org in a nicely transcribed edition. Yeah, I'll throw uh, some. I'll throw a link in the show notes for sure for everyone. Yeah, yeah, and so it's a great introduction not only to Althusser, and sometimes this is all anyone ever reads of of him for better right. or worse. I won't <laughs> say. I won't say whether or not. I mean, I, I think that. Althusser's also got some interesting writings on Freud and Lacan in relation to Marx. That reason alone kind of puts him in the in the purview of some of the things that are going on in French theory at the time, right. which is the conjunction of Freud and Marx. You know, obviously Althusser is pretty famous for being a professor of Marxist philosophy of you know these these questions regarding historical materialism and dialectical materialism, this sort of move towards an anti-humanism that he finds in Marx as a corrective against what became this commonplace move in his time to look at like the early Marx and to bring out these notions of a, 
of a humanist Marx, you know, on concepts like the species being of man and all this. And he tries to periodize Marx's works, kind of show the development towards the kind of mature work in capital and beyond. And he, you know, wants to seize upon this break, this, this epistemological break, as he calls it in Marx's work to elaborate an anti-humanism that doesn't privilege like the essence of man, this kind of essentialist Marx that we see in the young Marx, which I think is actually a, a, a pretty good corrective to some of the stuff that happened in the 20s and 30s with Kojev's lectures on Hegel, because we got the humanist Hegel with his sort of readings of the phenomenology of spirit. So Althusser also, and I'll just really quickly, the reason why it helps illuminate anti-Oedipus is for some of the reasons we talked about a few minutes before we started recording is how is it that the sort of conditions of the reproduction of the relations of production, i.e. how is it that the conditions underlying the reproduction of social and psychic repression, as Deleuze Guattari would say, how do they find their generative, intense generative forces in a way that doesn't merely look at the state as kind of an abstract concept, but looks at these ancillary cooperative apparatuses that he's calling ideological state apparatuses. And I think that this helps to give some background to some of Deleuze and Guattari's thought. I mean, this is published first in 69 and then revised with a little postscript in 70. So it's fresh in the intellectual milieu when Deleuze and Guattari are writing anti-Oedipus in, you know, it probably starting in 69, 70, 71, obviously anti-Oedipus published in 72, but it would be directly fresh in off the presses for them and be in that milieu. So the last thing I'll say about Althusser and why I see him, even if they reject some of his basic concepts like ideology, which we'll get into, his constant kind of need, a lot of Althusser's interventions is this need to show that the Marxist dialectic, as he sees it and elaborates it, is completely different from the Hegelian dialectic. And it can't merely be understood as this famous phrasing of Turning Hegel, Hegel right side up. Yeah. Yeah. Or on the side as, or whatever. As, in, as inverting, as inverting Hegel, that, that Marx doesn't merely invert Hegel because to do so, you kind of keep the same structural tendencies, including, for example, the simplicity of contradiction. For Althusser with Marx, no contradiction is ever simple. It's always overdetermined and has a sort of a, a multiplicity of factors, and it's always in uneven development throughout societies. So Althusser's kind of quest to overcome, to sort of dissipate the specter of Hegel that threatens Marxist philosophy, I think that is one of the ways I would start with articulating how he and Deleuze and Guattari could have at least a, a starting point, a springboard for a dialogue, even if they they don't coincide. And even if Deleuze and Guattari are obviously going off into a totally different stratosphere. I guess I would bring up just briefly for those who don't know, you know, just the importance of just some biographical details on Althusser having taught Derrida, Foucault, Michel Serre. And I think probably like, you know, I think there's a lot of 
although probably sort of different at the end of the day, but like you can see certainly within Foucault's work, at least early on the the influence of Althusser, and at least in my opinion. Yeah. This is the second time I've engaged with this essay. The first time was to provide a little bit of color and uh, in our discussions when I was doing the ego book series on Max Stirner's The Unique and Its Property. And so I looked at, I'd found some resonances in between what Althusser says in this essay and what some of the things that Stirner says in The Unique and Its Property. And I pulled some some quotes from that because I had those, <laughs> luckily I still had those notes just to throw that little wrinkle in there, which I guess sort of makes sense, right? As Stirner is kind of this post-Hegelian, does Althusser reference German ideology here? Yeah, he I does. can't remember because I was looking yeah. through, I did take <laughs> it. You had mentioned, and I'm also curious too about your, what drove you to read Mal's on practice and then the the other essay on the young Marx from Althusser. Yeah, I read the, those. I really, I did a, like a really cursory skimming so I could just kind of look for what you were going for. So I'm definitely just to put a flag in that as well. I'm kind of curious Yeah, the other what your, read, uh, what your game plan was there. Cause that's uh kind of unorthodox for you. So. Right. Right. The other stuff I read for today is how to say is Marxism and humanism, which I mentioned briefly right. as, which is important for elaborating Marxist anti-humanism, this move away from the language of, say the manuscripts of 1844 where this notion of a species being of of man i also read the thesis on Feuerbach, which is always good to go back and look at because althusser provocatively kind of says that the 11 theses on Feuerbach are these apparently simple declarative statements that are actually kind of riddles and have these ambiguous knots and can't necessarily be uh taken at face value so I, I reread those. Yeah, that's interesting because, of course, Feuerbach is particularly in the crosshairs of Stirner. And I want to hear a quote. Uh, also, I that a quote that he pulled soon from. Real quick, too, I just wanted to mention also so that you know you mentioned the anti-humanist strain within Althusser, and I think that is where I see as well. You know what Foucault kind of oh yeah gets involved with, or at least like you know you can kind of linearly see maybe that connection to where he draws that from, or kind of gets that idea. I know that one of the people in the crosshairs, it's not the only and not even the prime one, because Althusser is mostly criticizing Marxist philosophers that are going back to the early young Marx and kind of what he's saying, taking up a pre-Marxist mm-hmm. point of view with humanism. But, you know, existentialism and humanism that Sartre was, was famous for that lecture, it's obviously one of his most famous and accessible texts, but it also it's almost anachronistic at the time. Or at least seemingly it went against the current if you consider what people like Deleuze and Foucault, as you've mentioned, and Althusser go on to. In fact, Deleuze famously did not like the essay, even though he, he loved being in nothingness and read it over a weekend. You know, you can just imagine just him devouring it. I also read um, Althusser's On the Materialist Dialectic on the Unevenness of Origins, and that I thought was helpful. But again, a lot of it is sort of discussing Marxist philosophy within Marxism. I read the intro and preface to For Marx, which kind of sets out what he's trying to do with his interventions in Marxist philosophy in the 60s. I read Contradiction and Overdetermination, Overdetermination being one of Althusser's other kind of famous borrowings, really, but he's introducing the concept of overdetermination from linguistics and psychoanalysis into Marxist philosophy. 
Yeah. And I, I mentioned just a moment ago that, you know, his beef with Hegel or this Hegelian reading of Marx is that is that contradiction would be simple and would be sort of the self-movement of the idea, this autogenesis, whereas, you know, in sort of real historical context, it would be always complex and always have more than one aspect and more than one contradiction working at the same yeah. time. So, and then I read on the young Marx and on Marxism on the young Marx was interesting because it gave the background for why he rejects the um, sort of humanism of young Marx. And what the young Marx texts helped too is to show that you know, chapter three of libidinal economy, which is one of the densest and, and deepest chapters, Leotard juxtaposes the young Marx and the old Marx. And so what he, what I think is kind of interlocutor in that discussion is what Althusser is kind of bringing up with this. There's this return to young Marx that's going on in the forties and fifties and sixties in which he's writing. And he sees it as this kind of regressive move to that instead of supplementing and complementing works like capital, the young Marx is being kind of taken as the young Marx is being the manuscripts, for example, are being like analyzed and broken down into the elements and, and just in the unity is destroyed. And then, yeah. And then there's this, this teleological movement where it's like, okay, what does, what do these concepts mean now that we've broken the unity down? What, what does it mean in light of the old Marx? And, and Althusser sees that as a kind of a violence being done where you're imposing this natural evolution of Marx onto these early texts as though there were the seed that were naturally blooming into, into the tree of Marxism. Really quickly on that note, do you think that represents something that would be worthwhile investigation for us to go back, juxtapose that chapter with the Alpha say? Yeah. I mean, I think that if I, cause we spent two Second, I mean, you know, as much as I love that book, so just uh, an, we, any excuse to. <laughs> yeah, we spent two sessions on that chapter, right? Not only because it's long, but because it's dense, right? And I, th I think that one of the things that that I didn't realize was how sort of how much cachet and how much theoretical debate was going on in France in the '60s and '50s with the young Marx and the rediscovery of, of these unpublished manuscripts and sort of the impact they had on these debates about the sort of past, present, and future of Marxist philosophy. So I think Althusser's interventions there kind of give some indication of how he thinks the text should be read, which is as a unity, as a part of its historical moment, and not as a Let's pick and choose parts that we like and see them in light of this future anterior from capital backwards and in a way that distorts the struggles and the and the development that Marx was living through. You know, it's not as though Marx had had the end goal in mind at the time. Right. I think that's kind of Althusser's basically realist way of trying to read it is don't break this, this all up and then judge it by the, the light of of later Marx doing so leads to this impasse or leads to sort of these blind alleyways, these, these dead ends. And I think that part of what Leotard is doing in the, by juxtaposing the young organic marks and the, and the critical, the old critical marks, the young girl marks and the old man marks has a lot to do with this discussion. Whether or not how to say was the main inspiration for that chapter is something that we could investigate, but it, it seems to have been kind of hotly debated in a way that I think at least that I didn't 
quite know. And that could just be due to my ignorance of sort of French Marxism. But it's something that, that came to light in the reading. And the Mao, the reason why I read the Mao on practice is that, you know, Altusse puts this high price on theory with a capital T, which is basically Marxist philosophy, as opposed to what he calls, you know, in the ISA essay, philosophy as ideology or ideological philosophy, which is because he's, he's quoting from the German ideology where basically Marx is declaiming philosophy. There's a way, though, that, that Althusse kind of by elaborating theory with a capital T, he's kind of redoing the thing that Marx is, 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 is fighting against and setting up philosophy as the arbit arbiter of historical materialism. And it's setting up this tribunal whereby philosophy is able to be the sort of the ultimate guarantor of the truth of sort of the raw material of historical facts and rid it of the ideology. What gives philosophy the right? It seems kind of paradoxical. So with Mao, what I liked was the fact that you know, contra Altusse, Mao's on practice, really in a very straightforward way, constantly articulates the notion of practice, the notion of this unity of theory and praxis in this sort of recursive and reiterative dialogue of saying and doing, of thinking, of knowing and doing and thinking and doing in a way that Altusse seems sometimes to intimate is true, but in the end seems to, again, set up theory as the ultimate arbiter. And I think that that's why someone like E.P. Thompson in The Poverty of Theory wants to call out Althusse and say that Marx and Engels would have immediately rejected Althusse's type of idealism, this academic type of idealism. Anyway, that remains to be seen. But we're going to talk about ideology and ideological state apparatuses because I think that it has, I think that it still has a lot of relevance today. Yeah, absolutely. As we were saying, kind of pre-show, I was, you know, once you put that seed in my head that this was relevant for anti-Oedipus, it really did kind of crystallize a lot of the same sort of moves. I thought, in my opinion, at least in my reading, I felt like a lot of the same moves were being made or at least a lot of the same gestures, although, you know, perhaps with alternative terminology or con conceptually different, but the real, you know, the heart of the matter being, you know, ultimately desiring production or like schizoanalysis, <laughs> you know, play a big part of, of what we're discussing, or really, you know, maybe schizoanalysis is on the periphery of this discussion, but I think desiring production is, comes right to the core of this, of what this essay was talking about. At least that's my take on it. Coming back to this after having explored anti-Oedipus, I mean, even down to the, th you know, he's talking about even things like inscription, ritual, practice, etc. right? The coding of flows, the decoding of flows is kind of how I read that. But What we need to then see is how much ideology, as he describes it and defines it, and he does define it in this essay, although he defines it in various ways throughout his essays. Sometimes he'll talk about ideology as the system of images, representations, and myths that coincide with the organization of a social formation. 
That's mm-hmm. kind of a long-winded way of saying it, but he defines it much more individually in this essay, whereby he says that ideology is the imaginary relationship of man's of man's relation to the concrete conditions of existence, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this imaginary relation. And he'll try to go at pains then to say that in the end, even if it's this imaginary relation of individuals to their real conditions of existence, it's it still has material under yeah and so, and so that, that that's where we need to see and we'll try to get to this we shouldn't jump to it immediately but we'll have to come back to this question about where is the correspondence between ideology and desire and then yeah. where where perhaps did dng find ideology as elaborated by to say not to have the conceptual explanatory force that they think is needed for something like schizoanalysis. Yeah. I'll just say really quickly, yeah, I was reading ideology as like a overcoated flow effectively. We can come back to that. But that's kind it, of the what I was thinking of. You could sort of replace ideology with desire in a sense in this essay and it, and it still kind of is getting at the same thing, although yeah, like methodolo- methodologically perhaps it's different, but I don't know. Like I said, it's kind of gesturing. It's in the same ballpark move-wise, I think. Yeah, the question with overcoated flows is perhaps, I think that the only thing I would push back on is, you know, for for Deleuze and Guattari, overcoated flows are, are overcoating as a social process is exemplified and dominant in the despotic regime right in the in the despotic territorial machine Mm -hmm. so if you're speaking very broadly perhaps overcoding can coexist in a sort of secondary supplementary role in capitalist formations or in primitive territorial machines but you know with that caveat i think that there's something interesting to discuss there so i mean there's some stuff that gestures towards like name of the father as well in here that i thought which is kind of i think in that same ballpark and there's like a even a not quite an edible critique he recognized the family as a as a sort of apparatus of like an institutional apparatus in itself yeah it's an, like it's an it among them, right yeah that's right obviously we could start anywhere but the the main thing that the main reason why altuse tries to bring up the fact that apart from what he calls the state, state power, he'll say, okay, so let's just be general. We have the state as a concept, and it is a functionary of a certain form of ruling class, right? It is the functionary of a certain form of state power. And it's you know, he, he calls it he calls it a machine of repression, right? He calls it a, a repressive machine, a repressive apparatus. Right. Yeah. But he wants to distinguish between that that form of state power and the state apparatus in general. And one of his reasons being is that, you know, you can have coup d'etat. And while the state power may apparently change, the apparatus has remained the same. Right. Right. Yeah. And more or less the relations of exploitation and repression are conserved, even if the the people in power have shifted which so, feels like he's taking a shot at the bolshevik revolution or the the ussr well it, you know for or orthodox long, marxism or whatever 
I mean, for a long time, he was supportive of Stalinism in, until, you know, the 50s and 60s when he had to come to the obvious conclusion that there developed a cult of personality around Stalin. And there was, even if he contributed certain theoretical interventions that are more or less worthy, you have to call him out for the type of repression that you would find in any dictatorship. What Althusser is trying to ask in general, not just for the state, but for all modes and means of production, yeah, is, and the reason why he brings up ideological state apparatuses is how does the state, let's just say, as an example, reproduce the conditions of its production? For him, you know, it's it's the fact that, uh, as we'll see. For him, that he names a number of them, although the list is incomplete, but he'll say that outside of the state and its repressive apparatus, right, outside of, of it, but in conjunction with it, there are these, these other apparatuses, yeah. the ideological apparatus. So he says the religious ISA, right, the, the different churches, obviously in France, especially you had the sort of, even in Althusser's time, a kind of dominance of the Catholic church, although not as much as you had it in the monarchies, the educational ISA, the family ISA, the legal ISA, and the legal ISA is interesting because law is both a part of the state apparatus itself, right? But there are also sort of legal, juridical legal ISAs that function in, in cohort with the, with the courts and the police. The political ISA, right? The political system, the parties, the train union ISA, the communication ISA, where he says press, radio, television, we could say social media too, with that more loosely, perhaps. And then the cultural ISA. I'm sure there could be others, but these are the ones he sort of names. On, yeah. And all of them in concert help to reproduce the conditions of the production of repression, exploitation. Uh, but also the the means of reproducing the productive forces, right? By they function in a collaboration with preparing workers. And this is why he says, you know, with the French Revolution, because he's, he's French, so he's considering France as his main example. There's nothing wrong with that. Although he does kind of give examples from England and Germany. But for the most part, you know, the French Revolution wasn't just the sort of victory of the bourgeoisie against the uh, against the monarchy and the aristocrats there is it was also a sort of revolt against the power of the church in its collaboration with right. uh, with the monarchies in terms of in terms of tithing and, and land ownership and these these other these other things including the province of education right so he kind of says that after with some which kind of makes yeah kind of makes sense right like this he talks about the evolution of the i guess the passing of the torch in terms of the sort of standard barrier for for ISAs transitioning from the church who i think had had sort of you know what i mean like the state has the monopoly on on violence the church the catholic church in particular at least within europe and the west had a a monopoly on the production of knowledge for a long long time Right, the scribes, the priests, the um, yeah, 
knowledge, the, culture, monks, etc. Right. You know, the, the illuminated yeah. going back to illuminated manuscripts, etc., and the sort of clergy being the learned bourgeois, the function of the apparatus is identical. It's just a different form, I guess. And you can kind of see that the way he'll describe it, no ISA is completely separate, even if they're all relatively autonomous, you know, and yeah. they're de- they're determined right. in the last instance by the uh, the repressive state apparatus. And see, here's where I saw basically the perhaps the three con- or the conjunctions, disjunctions, right? Between the, all of these different apparatuses. You know, you could probably do like a flow chart or like diagnostic of how these sort of circle back on one another, right? With these kind of feedback loops, et cetera, that connect each one and like. Yeah, the syntheses, the syntheses of right, right. Pr- production, recording, and, and yeah, yeah. consumption. Exactly. Yeah. So in the in sort of the you know, in the 18th century, the church was the predominant ISA, right? It so it conjoined the family, right? Because it I mean, even in the 20th century, you had all kinds of rituals of birth of coming of age, of death is all within the church. It also had a cultural role, as you mentioned, right? It had the printing press begins with Gutenberg and Gutenberg's Bible. So the press, uh, the communications ISA was largely predominant, dominated, I say, you know, because he'll he'll always use the thing about when we think about Marx and the infrastructure and superstructure, the infrastructure, the base being the economic, and the superstructure being the cultural, the religious, the ethical, et cetera, the ideological. He'll always use the Marxist language that, you know, the superstructure in the last instance is determined by the infrastructure. And the same thing could be say of the ISAs that in the last instance, they are determined by the sort of base repressive state apparatus. And yet they have these ancillary functions of, they also have this reciprocal kind of secondary interrelation and reaction upon the base. This is why he says that the state doesn't have a monopoly on repression, that there's no fully or purely repressive apparatus, nor is there a fully purely ideological apparatus. The difference being the the main, the dominant mode of the state apparatus is repressive, violent, but secondarily it has an ideological function. Right. Because yeah. it's precisely the embodiment of the yeah. ruling class's ideology. And the same could be said, but inversely for the ISAs, right, that they have violence, uh, but that the, the violence the is the secondary aspect, whereas ideology and the reproduction of ideology as being able to reproduce the conditions of production, the means of production is their primary focus. And you can think about this. I mean, he gives examples of like with the press censorship. Right. That's a kind of repressive form, but also with the church and excommunication, that threat of eternal damnation, that's a kind of violent, repressive and not merely ideological role. So his point kind of being the collaboration between the family, the family as the unit of the reproduction of production, but also the sort of finality, the unit of consumption, which is language that D&G will use very clearly that moves in modern capitalist societies from the religious being the dominant ISA to the educational system, to the school and the, and the sort of confederation of schools and 
the sort of complicity between families and schooling becomes the dominant mode. And I think that we could still see that today. I mean, especially in red states in America, so many questions. That's the ethical battleground currently, right? Is because yeah. of the, the critique of, you know, this critical race theory, et cetera. Also the books that are being the books, the books banned, that are banned don't say gay laws, right? The question of alternate modes of sexuality, which themselves have, they're not disconnected from this concern with the reproductions of right. production. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, reproduction in another sense too, right? This, uh, this question of whether sex should be primarily taught as, you know, abstinence or saving for marriage because the family, right. And because of reproducing right. children who would be reared in the same ideological steeped in the same ideological waters in order to produce good workers. Yeah. It's not enough to merely reproduce labor power. You have to reproduce good, complicit, docile Subjects. labor power, right? That's right. So desire your own repression. And the lesson, right? And and it's interesting that there's not even a pure separation, even if the religious ISA becomes subordinate to the educational, it's not disconnected from it because right. we yeah. still hear this every now and then, uh, we still hear this question of prayer in schools, evolution taught in schools, and evolution isn't some disinterested neutral theory, it's precisely because it threatens a certain type of reading of a fundamentalist type of reading of the Bible and Christian ideology. So, you know, there's still this way in which the religious is mingled. It's not like it's fully supplanted. It's just become, it's not predominant anymore. Yeah. I'll inject a personal story really briefly. Just of along, course, the, along these lines would be that my seventh and eighth grade science teacher did not believe in evolution. And he got very upset with my best friend because my best friend did believe in evolution. And he, I think I've even said this before on the podcast, but he was like, you might've come from a dang monkey, but I didn't come from no dang monkey. But anyways. Well, there's so, a famous, there's a yeah, famous. Yeah, education. Yeah. The scopes monkey trial, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's exactly that. I mean, that, but that, that was in the 1920s, but still is relevant today. The, so the question of, of religion isn't just prayer in schools, although that's still debated and it coincides, but doesn't fully, it overlaps with, but it doesn't fully consume the debates about teaching sex and alternate modes of teaching sex and whether or not alternate modes of sexuality beyond the heteronormative should be allowed in discussions, you know, yep. alternate modes of birth control goes back to the dialectic between the coded, those who want the coded and who want the decoded flows. But it also comes to this question of teaching creationism, which if you're teaching it in school has little to no scientific value among scientists, right? But is obviously a purely, it's sort of on the nose ideological form mm -hmm. to try to reproduce a certain type of in this sense, you're not just trying to reproduce good workers, but you're also it comes down to a kind of ethno-nationalist reproduction, because now you're getting into this question of reproducing Christians, specifically white Christians. Right. You're kind of getting into this role of nation you know, states and peoples or something like that. Right. The kind of demographic that seeks to perpetuate itself in, in, a, in a narcissistic way and in a racist way and in a chauvinistic way that's the word that, that uh, yeah, altusay uses chauvinism which 
the way that the word became later chauvinism usually just means kind of like male right. supremacy but chauvinism in general is is a kind of perpetuation of a certain type of ideological supremacy right or and usually an insularity right because he talks about french chauvinism when he's kind of saying that part of the problem with scholarship on Marx for Althusser was the fact that only a certain contingent of very diligent Germanists were doing this difficult work of reading Marx, you know, uh, closely in the unpublished manuscripts in German, whereas the French really only cared what happened. I mean, he's saying this broadly, but really only care what happened within the, the boundaries of France, within the French language. So there's a kind of chauvinism there, right? This, this kind of, um, it implies narcissism. It implies a hostility or ignorance of the other, things like that. It was interesting that, and I mentioned this a, a little while ago about, I thought it was kind of interesting that Althusser speaks about this transition that we discussed from the clergy to the, or the the church edifice to the the university as like the university discourse re-Lacan, right? Althusser would be considered, I mean, that's structural Marxism, right? That's at least what he became famous for elaborating when the different structuralisms arose, structuralist linguistics, structuralist anthropology with Levi-Strauss, structuralist you know, psychoanalysis, even if Lacan may or may not have right. really, I mean, he did talk about structure, in, at least in terms of the symbolic and entering the symbolic structuralist Marxism would be associated with Althusser. So, and, and Deleuze delineates the differences and similarities in his essay on how do we recognize structuralism, and he includes Althusser and these others in that, in that role. So, you know, the, this ISA essay is a good peek into what structuralist Marxism would look like, particularly in this question that he asks, how are the conditions of production reproduced and secured? You mentioned having some interest in my the quotes I pulled from Stirner on this topic. So if it's okay with you, I think I might go ahead and read a couple. So the independent existence of the state establishes my lack of independence. Its naturalness, its organism demands that my nature doesn't grow freely, but is cut to fit it so that it can develop naturally. It applies the shears of civilization to me. It gives me an education and culture suitable to it. And teaches me, for example, to respect the law, to abstain from the violation of state property, i.e. private property, to revere a divine and earthly sovereignty, etc. In short, it teaches me to not be culpable, by which I mean to sacrifice my ownness to sacredness. Everything possible is sacred, for example, property, the lives of others, etc. This is the sort of civilization and culture the state is able to give me. It teaches me to be a useful tool a useful member of society. And then here's a second one. Efforts to mold all human beings into moral, rational, pious, human, etc. essences, i.e. training, have been in vogue from time immemorial. They are shipwrecked on the indomitable sense of self, on own nature, on egoism. And those, of course, are gleaned from the unique and its property by Matt Stirner. It sounds very harmonious with what we're discussing here. It could work as a footnote in Althusser's essay. This question of the educational ISA becoming dominant in modern capitalist societies does sort of work pretty well with some things we can find in, say, like Guattari, when Guattari's looking at, you know, when he when he seems to be in, inordinately 
obsessed with linguistics and linguistics as an imperialism when he's looking at questions of agrammaticality and uh, you know a signifying signs and things like this you know one of the things he says among many others is this notion that no one is supposed to be ignorant of the law right no one is supposed to be ignorant of the legal isa let alone, let's say, like the political ISA or the cultural ISA or the communications ISA, right? There's supposed to be this, not just a certain know-how and skills that we are sort of, that we glean from education, but we're supposed to sort of be this well-rounded person to function in society. But the main thing is, he's like, if you can't perform the dominant grammaticality, if you can't perform in or function in the dominant grammar, then how can you submit to law? And how can you be found competent? And so you, you have to be institutionalized, re-educated, right? You have to be sort of protected not only from yourself and from others, but from sort of harming the, the wholeness and totality right. of the legal institution. So there's a sense in which, you know, there's a sense in which Guattari is isolating and along with Deleuze, you know, you can see in A Thousand Plateaus more specifically, but, in, but Guattari's, a lot of his works, he's kind of articulating among the cultural ISA or, or along with it, this kind of linguistic, this idiomatic, this language ISA, right? Where it's assumed everyone is supposed to like learn the national language and, and speak proper French as Althusser says, right? But that, you know, I don't think that necessarily coincides with what Althusser calls the cultural ISA, which is literature, arts, sports. I think it, it's its own division or subdivision that is a prerequisite for even functioning within any of these ISAs, right? Acquiring a language in order to take orders, right? Because that's, that's kind of what they say is like language is not about communication. It gives orders. So if you don't have the necessary know-how and wherewithal and skills bequeathed by the linguistic ISA, how can, how can you follow orders or give orders if you're a part of the if you're more in step with the ruling ideology, right? Because it's not just about training workers. It's also about training, training different managerial functionaries. It's about training soldiers, right? Which we know how important that is to obey the hierarchy of command. I think that in that sense, one thing that's missing from Althusser, even if he alludes to it every now and then, is the, uh, the question of acquiring language so as to submit to the dominant realities, what Althusser would call the state apparatus and the ideological state apparatus. So I think that that kind of, he's presupposing and that everyone is rational, everyone is linguistically abled. Something that Guattari doesn't presuppose, right? Something that Guattari is, since he's working directly with individuals who have difficulties with with this schizophrenics psychotics yeah that's something that Guattari is very keen on discussing that Althusser takes as a given really briefly just want to I want to do a callback to our episode on on swamp thing because just going back to that look at what is it the anatomy no it's I guess it's the whole arc right from Alan Moore's run on swamp thing and one portion of this Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man, whenever he acquires, I guess, the Swamp Thing's abilities, whenever he attacks the small town of Lacroix, right? It's the first three things that he does is he takes the police first, then the schoolhouse, and then the church in that order. 
yeah. which is kind of funny. And I, yeah. you know, I pointed this out in that episode that like this kind of mapped on to this ideological state apparatus. Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that the town name La Croix is the cross. Ah. So you, you might think that the church would be the first to go, but yeah. Know, and maybe in a, if the comic book were set in 18th century, right. Yeah, exactly. That would, be the fir- that would be the first to go. Certainly 18th century France, right? Oh yeah. That's a good callback. I think the army, which for Althusser is, is a part of the repressive apparatus, not itself an ideological state apparatus, which is interesting, right? It's, um, it's its own kind of, it's a question about like, for example, the prison, which is something that obviously Foucault is famous for, maybe even stereotypically famous for, but the prison too would be a part of the ideological or would be a part of the repressive state apparatus and not ideological but you can see obviously that with a kind of maybe empty notion like rehabilitation i'm thinking of shawshank redemption when uh morgan freeman's character the last time he's up for parole and he's like rehabilitation is just a bullshit word that you know that gives people like you young people like you uh, the power to wear these fancy suits and throw around and and feel important you know it's it's interesting to note that obviously the prison isn't nearly even if it's dominantly violent and repressive, depending on the state, there are modes in which rehabilitation is taken more seriously. You know, just think of like Scandinavian prisons versus the American industrial prison complex. I mean, I just kind of <laughs> was throwing in that because it kind of just rang. It was a nice little refrain back to that episode. I did think this was kind of interesting where he's sort of tracing the Let's see, I guess the chain, like the production chain or like logistical chain of production and how it all sort of connects in this totality, like in this machine and how, I don't know, it kind of just reminded me a bit of signifying chains for Lacan having a similar sort of the production of signs, the production of surplus value, surplus jouissance. I don't know. Those things were kind of like coming to mind when I read this relative to Baudrillard and Lacan in particular. It's interesting that in, um, in like the Grunrisse or in the introduction to a critique of the political economy, you know, Marx is at pains to show that production and consumption, if we consider them in a chain, right? One is the origin and one is the end, you know, at the same time, they fuel one another. Right. And, and you can't have you can't have consumption without production. Obviously, that seems easily conceivable, but you also can't have production without consumption. And the uh, the example Marx gives is really cool because it it seems like an example that Deleuze and Guattari would give in anti Oedipus because he says, think of a think of a railway, a railroad system. Think of a railroad without any trains to move on it. What is it then? You know, I mean, you could say it's a kind of monstrous aesthetic object that's useless and we could go into like Baudrillard or Bataille and expenditure but the point being without the railroad being used up without it being consumed and consummated in that end can you really say it's productive so I thought that machinic example was was that's where the syntheses I think are relevant to I think particularly the last thing you said right yeah and um and the fact that Althusser talks about the state apparatus, which he wants to always qualify as repressive, 
that he calls it a repressive machine. You know, I, I do think that there are that kind of, you know, that kind of way of talking about it is very, it's Marxist. It's very confluent with Marx, but obviously D&G take the notion of machine and, and try to run with it and take it to its extreme consequences. And, you know, for them, they discuss the state as an apparatus of capture in, in a thousand plateaus. And it's not just an apparatus of capture insofar as it captures a sort of regional peoples and subordinates them to a, to a central kind of state peoples or despot, but also in the sense in which it captures a war machine that is exterior to it. And this is partly why, you know, some of the things Altusay says about the army that, you know, if the police is the first on the grounds direct imposition of, of order and violence, then the army is kind of a, a last resort fallback to indirectly impose the will of the repressive apparatus. It's not quite the same, but it has a kind of logic that resonates with this notion that the war machine is, is exterior and captured. One of the things he turns to, because he has two general theses, and we've talked about one of them, but I guess we should go back over it before we go to the second one, which is that ideology is the imaginary relationship between man and his real conditions of existence. And he does work through how ideology in the end is still material, right? It's still concerns material practices it's still you know even if it's it's not imaginary in the sense in which well definitely not in the sense in which Lacan talks about the imaginary it's not imaginary in any sense in which it's mere illusion although there's an aspect of that and it's not even imaginary in the sense in which Marx works it out in his early writings where it's it's about this relationship it's the fact that man is alienated in those real conditions themselves, right? It's imaginary, I think, in the way that, I think that for him, it's imaginary in a way that it, that it functions in an unconscious way, right? This, he says this in, in other essays, but in this essay, he's trying to make clear the role of consciousness, specifically mm -hmm. in the role of us becoming subject, which is one of the most famous parts of the essay, this notion of interpolation or hailing and how we are always already subjects because even before we're born and Lacan will say this too, we're sort of, there's already a place marked out for us, right? Yeah, even, even right. before we're born in the symbolic, right? Is what Lacan would say. Yeah. Like our, our being is kind of overdetermined in the last instance. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So this notion that when he's saying imaginary, he's talking about this unconscious relationship because there's two senses of which it's imaginary. I think for all to say for one, say we are atheists and we're talking about, you know, in the sixties in France, the still fairly dominant religion being Catholicism. I assume Al say is, is an atheist, but he doesn't necessarily come out and say it, but he talks about Christianity, especially towards the end of this work as though he were an atheist. So, so he says, basically, if we're not in that particular ideology, but we see someone else practicing the rituals of the material existence of this other ideology, like Roman Catholicism, kneeling and praying and all of this, mm -hmm. 
then it's easy to say, oh, that's imaginary. Now, he says that unless we're good Marxists or Spinozas, it's always ideology that someone else does. It's not right. I, yeah. I'm never in ideology. Now, he says this ironically because he, he's saying, no, in fact, ideology isn't contra Marx, you know, around the time of his epistemological break from the ideological young Marx to the scientific continent that he opens up. Ideology is for him, at least in class societies, because there's a sense in which classless societies potentially might mark another break in history or whatever. But within class societies, he's kind of, insofar as the last instance is the class struggle, he's trying to say that ideology is kind of the lived unconscious movement whereby our system of representations is determined by the organization of the social formation, et cetera. So there's yeah. a sense in which for by him- the body we, without organs, right? Kind right. Of. I mean, yeah, the body without organs and the, the socius in that, in, that, in that tension. So there's a sense in which it's imaginary insofar as it's unconscious, insofar as we have to live through and struggle against the sort of ideological plating and system of representations. And, and in fact, use- the ideology of the ruling class against itself. So there's a sense in which we have to come to consciousness through class struggle to, to sort of turn the ideological platings and turn it into a weapon. But the lived sense in which we are, we sort of swim through ideology as though it's our milieu. I think that for him is why it's imaginary because it's almost too immediate, right? It's, it's, we, we live through it. And if we claim to be outside it, that's, in some instances, in the that's really when we are are deeply within it because of this kind of denial and repression, to use Freudian terms that he's not unwilling to turn to. Yeah, you know. So I think that we talked about this a little bit, but this is where you know Deleuze and Guattari are, are kind of illuminating because in the very basic example they take up from Reich, where Reich is one of the first to to put the problem, the question in such clear terms, is why. And Spinoza did this too, but but Reich, you know, in, in the conjuncture that they're working in, it's not enough to say that the masses were duped. There's a way in which you're begging the question. There's a way in which you're avoiding the real problem. It's not enough to say that the masses were duped by fascism. The point is to analyze and to, and to sort of articulate how they desired fascism. And if you're not asking that question or posing the question in those terms, you're still you're still sort of begging the question. You're still sort of presupposing what you wish to explain. I think interestingly here, the dialectic or the contradiction between anarchist thought and one might say like Marxist-Leninism. So the anarchist critique is commensurate with Althusser in that unless you're just merely having the leadership, you know, the state who's in control of the state apparatus change that altered does not merely rid you of the of the ideological apparatus underneath right and i think although i think marxists are actually probably more schooled on this in the sense that what anarchism lacks conversely is that it doesn't have a theory that explains how social change occurs because it ex- anarchism is this sort of more modernist rational approach i rationally realize that between you and i our ability to come together and diminish our and like willingly lay down our egos to exchange whatever between us is rational therefore why can't we just do that right why can't we just be rational and realize that cooperation 
is a rational end. Like, why can't we just simply merely flip that switch without some type of historical process? And I think that's what the science of Marxism attention is to do is to understand how change works at the level of the body without organs, at the level of the socius, rather than at the level of individual consciousness. And I think that's the strength of Marxist critique is the understanding that no, it's not just simply about changing the conscious mind, right? There's an unconscious and that unconscious goes directly to desire, which circles back around to this question of why do the masses desire their own repression? I think that's a that's a really nice way to put it. And that exactly shifts the terrain to Deleuze and Guattari and why they refuse to continue to work within the conceptual framework of explaining the ideology. Because I think that the easiest way I or the way that I try to understand this and it's the fact that it's not explanatory enough. It doesn't really help to say that the German masses or whatever, submitted to Nazi ideology, or they lived Nazi ideology, they subscribed to it, they believed in it, all these different ways of framing ideology, you know, for them, it has to be more directly, as you said, put in unconscious terms, in ways that are a little bit more provocative, I think, but also a little bit more explanatory, which is this question of desire, that you can have pre-conscious and conscious interests that are governed by reason and understanding, but that doesn't get to the heart of unconscious motivations and investments. And there's a sense in which I think that Althusser is is straining, is is not straining, is sort of slouching towards, it's it's crawling (laughs) towards this notion of unconscious investment with ideological state apparatuses. Right, right. But I think that Deleuze and Guattari, you know, when they say in A Thousand Plateaus that ideology does not exist and has never existed, it's not necessarily to say that there isn't this way in which we live through these prejudices we've inherited, this worldview that we've inherited, but it's that ideology doesn't explain that. It doesn't get to the heart of what they want to try to elaborate more explicitly with with the formations of desire, which for them is not merely individual in our hearts and minds. It is directly machined and engineered. It, it is directly invested in the socius and not some sort of epiphenomenon. Because I think that that's what happens for Deleuze and Guattari is how do you save ideology from becoming this epiphenomenal thing Rather than even if you say it's like material and it's lived, how do you keep it from merely coinciding with the dominant system of representations? Because for them, desire isn't isn't a system of representations and images. It can have something to do with them and those can be. But the, the system of representations and images, they become secondary to the lived affect, the lived sort of confluence of desire, which is always determined by a social formation, which is sort of always in this negotiation and which is not necessarily caught in, you know, either the family or any of the ISAs, right, but is open to them. And in some senses also is struggling against them, not merely determined by them, even in the last instance, I think that, you know, that language of of a last instance is, it's collapsed when desire and the infrastructure are seen 
as identical but having differing regimes. You know, this is the difficult part where the last instance doesn't sort of leaves out the back door, along with other transformations of Marxist philosophy in anti-Oedipus, which, you know, Brazier noted in the in that essay on the human, if you remember, which we didn't get to ask him about, but this notion about for Deleuze and Guattari, for example, the, the uber explanatory concept, not just in Mao, but in Althusser, and I suppose in Lenin, I'd have to check more. It's been a while since I've read his works is class struggle, right? When it's like, yeah, the, class struggle is the, the motive of, motor of history. That's right. So for Marx too. And I think for Deleuze and Guattari, when they say something provocative, like the bourgeois is the only revolution, revolutionary class, there is one class that I think is hard to swallow from, you know, you could consider all their attacks on Freudianism and Lacanianism hard to swallow, but something like that for a Marxist. Yeah, for Marxists, yeah, that's a... Is... But I would agree, like, I do agree that I just don't think that history has shown that this class struggle being the motive of history holds up, but maybe that's because my, either my understanding is poor, or like, I don't know. My knee-jerk reaction, let's say, is that I just don't think that history bears out. If anything, history is struggle. Uh, it's more like the history of domination. That's a type of struggle. A struggle against domination, I don't know, perhaps. The struggle against the domination of nature. If you want to go that level, then maybe I'll agree with you. Right? Kind of going back to even what we discussed with Brassier on that notion of this dialectic of, of nature and culture. And having to dominate nature to reproduce our own reproduction to reproduce the productive system, to reproduce the social, to reproduce our own being. Right. And, you know, when Brazier turns to Hegel at the end of that essay and says that spirit is not mastery, it is the mastery of mastery, it is the, it's not domination, it's the domination of domination. This is sort of the, this is what he proposes as a definition of communism. I'm not sure if that type of analysis isn't that far from Deleuze and Guattari, but it, the terms yeah. would have to be shifted. And the and I think that this notion of unrooting, you know, as Foucault says at the end of the preface to any of us, not to become enamored of power, not to will power, as Nietzsche says, right? That the will to power becomes perverted and bastardized when power is what is willed. Same with war. When the war machine takes war as its object, this is when we start to go down the road of totalitarianism and fascism. So, so that's the first part of, of ideology, the first definition of this theory of ideology, which is a helpful definition because sometimes Althusser can be, like many French thinkers, let's see, circumlocutious, right? So, <laughs> you know, so when, so when he defines, when he finds ideology, not merely as a system of representations or this, this product of, the organization of social formations, which obviously it has ties to because it is, it's in this dialectic between the real conditions of existence and the imaginary relationship that individuals feel with those conditions of existence. I think that that's the first part. So the second part that he says, he says that ideology has no history. And he very quickly says that it's not that ideologies in the plural have no history, because obviously they're, they're going to be a product, they're going to be in this relationship with the social formations, as I said, but that ideology in general has no history. This is where he turns to Freud and turns to this notion that in the same way that the unconscious has no history, ideology has no history, or at least the, 
in the same sense in which the unconscious in general has no history, ideology has no history. And I feel like this is where I don't necessarily agree, but I think it's something that we should spend a few moments talking about. And maybe I'll get your thoughts first before if you had some thoughts about this, this claim. You already said this, but refresh my memory. Like I felt like Deleuze and Guattari had said this or something, something has no history or where do I know this from? Like, cause this caught me when he said ideology has no history. I immediately went to something that Deleuze and Guattari had said, but I'm not sure. Possible, but that they say this in, in parrot, I'll to say, but it, it would be at the. Something. Or maybe it was the unconscious ha- well, aspect of it. I don't know. It rang a bell and I was like, oh, okay. This sounds really interesting. Well, I would have to take issue even with the losing what three, if they said that this unconscious has no history sounded really familiar from something I've read and I just couldn't place it. They say no history one time in anti-Oedipus where they cite Marx and they're citing, um, they're talking about one of Freud's teachers, Clarenbo. Clarenbo is the Feuerbach of psychiatry, the sense in which Marx remarks, whenever Feuerbach looks at things as a materialist, there is no history. In his works, and wherever he takes history into account, he's no longer a materialist. That's the one part where they say they say the phrase "no history." With Freud, two things I would I would bring up to question whether or not the unconscious has no history. Now, the unconscious doesn't recognize negation. The unconscious perhaps doesn't understand history in the way we do as a linear successions of of events that happens in time because. The unconscious doesn't really grasp time. So when uh, maybe that's it. Maybe it was that the unconscious doesn't have a concept or doesn't know time. Right. It, it, because when, when Freud begins, he, he begins um, or have a concept of time or something. He, be, like that. he begins civilization as discontents with this very interesting metaphor about how if we consulted archaeologists and anthropologists and historians and we went to Rome and we could say, OK, Maybe Rome started back here on these hills of Palatine, and maybe we can kind of see the outlines of the first kind of structures. But at a certain point, even with the most sensitive tools, we can't see all the way back to the Genesis point. Whereas with the unconscious, if the unconscious were metaphorically conceived analogically as Rome, we would see not only the Parthenon and the Colosseum, but we could see sort of side by side or overlapping in this crazy non-Euclidean space, not only the, the small Palatine hills upon which Rome began, but, but everything that came after it, kind of in the way that Walter Benjamin's angel of history sees history as this one giant catastrophe piling up on itself instead of it sort of taking the tinier shape. Time is a flat circle. Yeah, something like that, right? This time is a flat circle. So there's this notion that if the unconscious doesn't understand history, it's in that sense. But when he says it, it doesn't have a history. This is paradoxical to me. And perhaps, you know, because I'll leave ideology to one side and his but but him using Freud's unconscious as a uh, as as a justification point, I don't necessarily think that that flies. I mean, not only with this with this metaphor of room, but with with the fact that his another analogy he uses is the mystic writing pad right where the unconscious is the slate the slab that's being written upon and the pre-conscious is the sheet that lifts right and so the unconscious for freud sort of even with the possibility of brain damage retains all of its received stimuli in this 
interesting, again, non-Euclidean space where it sort of never forgets. But this is why repression is interesting because it's, it's this function of a collaboration between the pre-conscious and the unconscious. And it's not like the unconscious is forgetting anything. It's the very fact that the unconscious retains that. Ah, uh, right. That, yeah. That, that, that traumatic kernel or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. So there's that part, but then there's also this notion that we aren't born with an unconscious and not even to go with like Watchery and his analyses of the unconscious, but even with Freud, if we consider like individuals having their own little personal unconscious, which, you know, Watchery and Deleuze would kind of want to say, you know, fantasy is reflective, the unconscious is is machinic and it's not necessarily our own little space in our heads, but let's just, let's just take a basic Freudian model. The infant is not born with the unconscious. It's not born with an ego. These things take the brain has since we're born too early, so to speak. Right. Since we're born defenseless and helpless, we are not born with these apparatuses of the unconscious, of the ego, of even of the superego. All of those take place in a psychogenesis that takes time, that that evolves. Right. And so this notion, this notion is suspect to me that Althusser is trying to articulate and just one last example and i'm surprised how to say himself comes to this notion that ideology has no history because you know one of the things that marx is working against with this with the the backlog of sort of vulgar economists he's working with is the fact that production is kind of taken as a given production is taken as a kind of eternal truth and it's it's exchange or distribution or even consumption that takes on these historical forms. For Marx, that makes no sense, right? That the mode of production would differ if you're in a Roman slave economy versus a feudal economy versus a modern capitalist economy. Production isn't some eternal truth that falls from the sky. It's the same thing, right? That, you know, when Guatemala- It has says, a history, yeah. I mean, when Guattari says we have the unconscious we deserve, he's not talking about some sort of eternal given. Transcendent, yeah. A priori. Right. So that is where I don't necessarily agree with Althusser. And I think that it, it contaminates his discussion of the fact that we are sort of always already subjects or it's like when we're hailed in the street by, hey, you, that he says nine Nine out of 10 times, the right person turns around, which I don't know where you got that because I've, I don't know if any of you ever been, think you've been hailed and turned and waved and made an ass of yourself because you're not being hailed. I mean, like nine out of 10 times, I don't know about that. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm just more obtuse, but the fact that, you know, we become subjects in this hailing, but yet we are always already subjects, right? Because we are hailed before we are born, we are interpolated by the symbolic, blah, blah, blah. This is where I find that a thinker like Foucault, and I know that Will a few weeks ago really exemplified this very well, you know, I think like Foucault who, who moves on to talk about these processes of subjectification that obviously would be historically determined. Contingent, and, yeah. And, and some of, to the point where Foucault later is asking about these, these questions of desubjectification, how can we desubjectify to the point where Deleuze and Guattari are asking these questions in A Thousand Plateaus, how we can sort of a manage to cautiously begin to subtract 
ourselves away from the dominant signifying order in order to not only to, to de-stratify, but to de-subjectify, to become maybe not purely asubjective, because that could never happen, but but at least to, to sort of embark on this line of flight of becoming imperceptible. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, exactly. this this is where I feel like however helpful it may be for a certain conjuncture to talk about interpolation in the terms in which Althusser brings it up in terms of hailing, I feel like it shows its, I don't want to say it's idealist connotations, but it shows a certain rigidity. It doesn't seem aware of becoming subject is not some sort of one-way street or some sort of pre-given function of individuals that there's something much more complex going on. Yeah. I don't think you quite addressed this in that discussion, but what do you think about this corollary statement that ideology has no outside for itself, but at the same time that it is nothing but outside? This kind of is another way of framing what I was saying earlier, where it's we see, you know, for the atheists seeing the the Christians praying and doing their rituals and taking the communion, it's, oh, they're they're in ideology. Right. So in that sense, it's always the other who is ideological, not myself. Right. So in that sense, it's outside. But on the other hand, as he kind of says, at least in class societies, at least in societies within history, ideology is this kind of milieu. Right. Is this kind of milieu that that we're not we're never outside of, even if the goal with kind of sort of the scientific theory of Marxism is to rid itself of its ideological trappings, you know, there's a sense in which it is itself a part of class struggle. And so far as there are classes, there will always be a ruling ideology. And so whether we unconsciously live them and sort of eat it up or use it as a weapon against itself, there's a sense in which ideology is part and parcel of that struggle, if that makes sense. Because he says it is nothing but outside for science and reality. Right? Yeah. So that would be the thing. And it's a question if one can ever perfectly do it. You know, I think that for someone like Mao, and this is why I think Mao was really helpful, was, you know, just because you've reached knowledge, a logical knowledge after sort of repeated perceptual inputs, doesn't mean that you can stop there and be like, okay, we're good. It obviously has to resubmit itself to these to this endless cycle yeah, the, of practice. The dialectic of yeah, yeah. of the dialectic of culture and nature. Basically, when idea meets material or vice versa, really yeah. like in terms of, I mean, I guess directly versus the sort of indirect relationship between, I guess in an at an intense in an intense way, at an intensity that isn't the same as just ideology functioning. As you said, this um, interrogation of measuring of concepts and reality of the real. Because yeah. I um, think maybe that's what the, di- I mean, the dialectic is all about. It's about failure, right? If you're not allowed, to, and this is kind of the problem with communism in a sense is like in terms of economics, right? Because what the what's dynamic about capitalism is that it allows failure to occur. It's this question of what Marx saw capitalism would be the producer of its of the of its own ends right of yeah. its of its own demise and Deleuze and Guattari think this as well but not necessarily in terms of contradictions right they, no one's ever died of contradictions they're kind of famous for saying that but they do think that it is 
only by, at least in, in the time of Anti-Oedipus, it is sort of, to use the phrase, accelerate, you know, accelerate capitalism, capitalism's, they don't really talk about it in terms of contradictions, right. but in terms of this move towards its, pushing it towards its exterior limit, right? It's pushing it so fast that it can't renegotiate its, the different limits in which they analyze it, the interior, the imaginary, the exterior, the imminent limits, pushing it so fast that it can't write itself, which is why, you know, Guattari says like more gadgets, more things, more bullshit, like just, and whether or not that pans out or will pan out or, or whether or not that it's the true way to do it, there is a way in which it both harmonizes with kind of Marx insofar as it's like, we got to have more contradictions. I just think they're wary of that notion of contradiction. That's again why they why, why they are why they are abnormal Marxists. If yeah, well, I mean, to me, it's almost like the negative dialectic because it's difference that's always difference is always going to reproduce itself, and that's always going to reproduce contradiction within totality, which is going to you know what I mean. So there is no teleological endpoint. It's always there will always maintain some type of, and that almost goes to that dialectic or that idea of the scapegoat that I've been kind of on too, right? Like there's almost always this this difference right the return of difference in a sense return of the empire or the empire strikes back it's like difference strikes back because you can't have a to- you can't have a whole like the only way you can have a whole totality is if the whole is if the everything stops right if it is a flat if time is a flat circle and you're like from that privileged van- vantage point of of whatever of the eschaton or whatever the fuck yeah, the scapegoat has a positive function for, you know, the signifying despotic regime, you can even say capitalism. It, yeah, I mean, that would it, be it, Durkheim too, which I've like harped on so often about what is deviant is always going to be redefined because it does have a positive function on the reverse side. It also has a positive function on the side of power because it blocks off the line of flight, right? Yeah. It, it, it turns it into a negative, it turns into a negative image of itself, that which can't be gone beyond. And so you know, obviously that's why it's not just rooting for the little dog or the underdog. It, there is a, a sense in which reclaiming the scapegoat, reclaiming the slur, whatever, you know, there is this, this way of unblocking that, that blockage. And again, using, to speak in Althusserian terms, using the dominant ideology against itself, right? Using its... That goes very well to, I think, our discussion with Will, in particular, the way that you know, he talked about the the people that got under the bus tires. The better example is whenever it was uh, in Denver, there was activists. They put themselves, placed themselves under the wheels of buses, etc., to halt this intersection. Right, but the here's where it really maximizes the point is that the police buses did not have wheelchair ramps. So that's right because the that, perpetrators were were disabled. So it, precisely, it, that's a good point, and that that's a very potent way of bringing out the contradictions in the system if we're going to stick within that and and i think that it's it's helpful here you're right that the very means they were protesting were used as a weapon against their means of repression and and uh and incarceration i mean this also raises a lot of questions relative to the primacy of production because the disabled like we said in that or i try to argue is that the disabled really problematize the fundamental relation of because the there. ideal of production. Yeah, mm-hmm. precisely. Yeah, the it is a question of, you know. Because you can't really reduce them down to their labor per se. No, 
and capitalism still has ways of trying to recoup it right. insofar as it's moving less its technical apparatus, moving more yeah. and more to a to a service industry rather than um, a production industry at least in certain parts of the west i mean america included so it, it can find ways of of transforming labor power from a more industrial model of producing things to to this service economy of producing services producing value in other ways but it's you know again so many factors are in contention with this as marx already saw the automation the need for less and less labor and altusay even points it out in this essay right this question of the standard minimum wage not just to have the the worker come in and feed himself and clothe himself and come in the next day but also to raise children to produce workers in the future and how that minimum wage itself is historically socially regionally determined right determined yeah. it, germans not, need beer french french need wine etc I, I mean I, I thought that was that was nice yeah con- it's nice when else you say can be concrete and give right. concrete examples because many times as Thompson tries to show, he out to say with his kind of philosophical prejudices is sometimes he confuses empiricism, right, as denounced by Marx and um, and Kant and others with empirical facts and procedures and wants to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's part of being a sort of academic, right? That's part of being a Marxist from the lecture <laughs> hall, not to the smooth skin academic that leotard goes in on right <laughs> yeah and i think that you, you can include out to say there i mean for but i think that for all of his faults this essay on the isas and looking at how the dominant powers the different isas help to function to inculcate you know sometimes i, I get interested in the verbiage one of the things he says about the isas is that they steep people uh, they steep yeah. individuals like if i could yeah, teabag, teabag, right yeah they, yeah they steep individuals in ideology i thought that was a very concrete verb but the other one is that they are um god what was yeah the that's word? the steep thing is great too because it's it allows for this diffusionary instead of this like like your die cast so there's a there's a blurriness on the edges on the periphery it's not this totality that you're like stamped with and like forever right i mean this is partly why he says ideology is material because it is it surrounds us. It's not just ideas in our head. It's not just mental and spiritual, which is why I think that it can still have resonances with the and Guattari's notion of desire. The other word, well, one of the other things he says that what's interesting about ISA is maybe apart from the repressive state apparatus in general is that they are not just the stakes, but also the sites of class struggle, right? So we can think about pirated radio or even pirated media in our time, like in the uh, with Napster and these other things, but you can also think about the history of America and the different offshoots of religion, some of which were violently repressed, which, for example, um, you know, in Rhode Island, I'm trying to think of the Protestant movement that tried to do away with churches and try to really teach this philosophy of a kind of personal connection to God that doesn't even be mediated by any intercessor. can't remember the the name of it but still that's that's kind of an example of the religious isa obviously different types of schools that may that kind of may fall in between the public and the private obviously there's homeschooling where you can brainwash your your, your kids with propaganda or try to teach them means of 
being aware of it. I can't find the other verb he uses, but I, I'll let you talk for a second while I look. The way that he brings up Moses and, and Christ and God and God duplicating himself via Christ, I thought that was kind of interesting. And even now that I'm thinking about that further, that goes to almost like the infinite debt element of, of the sacrifice. But man duplicates himself in God hmm, is the way that I would say it. All right. The other word he says is he talks about the all ideological state apparatuses, whatever they are, contribute to the same result, the reproduction of the relations of production, i.e. of capitalist relations of exploitation. Each of them contributes towards this single result in the way proper to it. The political apparatus, by subjecting individuals to the political state ideology, the indirect parliamentary or direct plebiscitary or fascist democratic ideology. The communications apparatus by cramming every citizen with daily doses of nationalism, chauvinism, liberalism, moralism, etc. by means of the press, the radio and television. Same goes for the cultural apparatus. The role of sport and chauvinism is of the first importance, blah, 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 blah. This notion of not just steeping individuals, but, of, but specifically the press and the media of cramming the individual. I mean, I think that that with the rise of not only reality TV, but just all the streaming services and just the, the yeah. I mean, that would be both. Or we have we have oh, more yeah. information production overproduction of information, or we have yes. more information and no meaning, or etc. Exactly. Yeah. Hyper, no, some, hyper reality. I mean, right. No symbolic exchange. Blah blah blah. So so the individual isn't merely steeped in ideologies. He gets crammed by it, and that's a way of jamming too. Right. It's a way of like a radar. It's a way of sort of short circuiting the. Um, the lines of, of yeah, the lines, the of, lines flight, of flight, the means yeah, of sure. means of awareness, means of attacking the weakest link. Right? <laughs> Al say talks about Lenin's theory of the weakest link in these state apparatuses, in these ideological, state which still holds true. Like if you think about the, yeah. uh, I was thinking about the truckers in Canada. They found themselves a nice little choke point. That's right. Yeah, in the supply chain or whatever you want to call it. I think that. the data the data centers are the new railroad to reference Lenin there as well, but I'll be, yes, I won't elaborate on that little point. That gets us into partly, it, it at least resonates into something that Bojira says with the spirit of terrorism and the rise of computer viruses, right? I mean, I think that that's part of what you're talking about with the data centers being weak points, but also just the I love you virus that he uses as an example, right? It's a, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, even more topically with Ukraine, Whenever uh, Ukraine was a very large producer of, um, I guess, a lot of Bitcoin and crypto blockchain type stuff was housed in Ukraine. And so that <laughs> whenever the rumblings were going on in the prelude to the war, you know, there were some pretty severe swings, I think, in, at least in terms of Bitcoin's value. So it just absolutely goes to this, this uh, phenomenon, I think. But I didn't really have much else. Yeah, I think that uh, it's... A it's okay if this episode is not not super long. I mean, we have been almost recording for two hours, probably an hour 45. I mean, I'm feeling really good about what we did today, honestly. Oh, I yeah. Very, for, I feel very good. Like, I, one of the be- my better showings, I think. Well, you did, you, did, I, you did excellent. And we, I think it's important. We kind of stepped out of our normal milieu, our normal yeah. metier. We, uh, I liked our very unorthodox reading of this, <laughs> or at least yeah. that's kind of the way that I was looking at it. it was like, uh, well, I like that we we linked it back to stuff we're interested in, right? Right. right. I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. That's, that's the point, and 
you know, it's, it's not just a, not just to reject to show its importance, but just to show that it, it perhaps, perhaps has, it has its merits and its faults. Is it anything? There are points of harmony and disjunction with the, a lot of the discussions we've had. And I think that was valuable. And yeah, I think this is, I think this is good. And it's, it's a good place we can stop. I hope everyone enjoyed the very unorthodox reading of Alpha Say today. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Peace. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.